Welcome into Natchez Glen House Stories number 16. Guestless this week on Natchez Glen House Stories, which is the first topic I wanted to cover. Everyone that I've had on the podcast has really been a great guest. We've had people from the academic side of gardening, people who run nurseries, both very specialty and larger scale nurseries. We've had people visit us at Natchez Glen House all the way from Europe. I mean, it's been a plethora of guests from all kinds of categories of gardening and horticulture. But one of the things you may not always hear is the challenge that having a new type of media represents for people in horticulture and in gardening. You have heard me talk many times before about the group of gardening and horticulture not always being the most out there, not always the most, I don't want to say inclusive, but that's where my brain wants to take me. They weren't outside of their own gates really that inviting. The phrase preaching to the choir often comes to mind for the world of gardening and horticulture. So doing a podcast format where it's truly conversational is a really new concept to all of my guests. And I'm not going to belabor some other podcast on gardening that I listen to occasionally. But boy, I'll tell you, it's not a lot of conversation. It's a lot of question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. And a lot of it sounds like the same kind of content that's been generated for decades, be it in magazines, be it in books, be it in Saturday morning 6 a.m. radio shows on the AM dial back in the day. So I really effort for us to go beyond that. Even had Alan Armitage scare us all about growing peonies. I think that's golden. For me, I'd rather hear the wow, why are peonies difficult to grow? Let's get into it. But yet so many people grow them. Not just what we all know already, peonies are a beautiful flower. But let's have honest conversation and dialogue in a both sides now Joni Mitchell way that we learn the bigger picture of what goes on with gardening. No, most gardeners are nice and... Um... And they're very generous, too, uh, much more so than when I was young, I think. They, they want to share what they have. They want to share their knowledge more. And I think that nurserymen are, mu are much more generous with their knowledge, too. They want to tell other nurserymen about how to propagate things. And, and um, it used to be, all this used to be kept very, very secret. There has been, there's much more openness. Why do you think that is, I wonder? I put this up on Instagram stories three or four weekends ago. And I didn't get a chance to answer the question. Christopher Lloyd asking the question of why do you think nurserymen, nursery people, people in the horticultural trade, gardening, were more open at the time he was doing this interview? It's a really fascinating question to ask. At the time of this interview is in the late 80s, early 90s. And what Christopher Lloyd is saying is there was a time where people weren't real generous with their knowledge. 
but now they are. Why? What gives? I'm going to answer Christopher Lloyd here. There was a period in early botanical, and we got to go way back here, Victorian era, almost Edwardian era, 1800s-esque, where hunting for plants became a real hobby of the aristocratic pursuit. If you had the rarest plants from around the world, it showed that you had the money and the power and wealth to send people to these new worlds and bring back plants, which was no easy feat at the time. In fact, the Edwardian case, uh, which is a little mini traveling greenhouse, was during the Edwardian era. And that was a huge revelation for people that you could transport really rare plant material across boats to the Atlantic, the Pacific, and get them back primarily to Europe and keep them alive. So it meant you had the wealth to do things like that. And it also drove a lot of competition. And I think that spirit of competition lasted well in to the 20th century. And maybe it wasn't till post-World War II that we started to see that fade away. And then as we got through the 1950s and 60s and 70s, again, the world, even then, was getting a little smaller through technology, through travel. And maybe that opened up the gates for people's generosity, people wanting to share knowledge, wanting to share about plants and gardening and horticulture and the things they found. This is the best way to propagate this. And that seed germinates best if you do this and if you do that. Now, my question, if Christopher Lloyd was still with us, is what would he think about today? What would he think about the last two years and what we're seeing on Instagram and Facebook and social media and people charging for these really expensive workshops that are online? You don't get anything except a book. Congrats. $30 on the Amazon. What would Christopher Lloyd think of that today? Think about his question. And when you hear his voice on the subject, you can tell it's really meaningful to him that he saw a change in his lifetime, that people became more generous. Because there's nothing more frustrating than a hardcore gardener like Christopher Lloyd was to have a plant that you can't propagate or you can't figure out a way to cite that plant correctly. Is it in too much sun? Is it in too much shade? Why isn't it flowering? What's the Goldilocks for this plant? There's nothing more magical than when someone tells you, well, this is how I get the best out of that plant. And then you do it and it works. You then put that person up in your mental hall of fame. They belong up there the rest of your life and you will remember that. Go, remember when Samantha Smith, made up name, told me how to properly cite those Japanese anemones, and then they started just blooming beautifully for the rest of the time. Those are the things that historically have meant a lot to people like Christopher Lloyd and gardeners. That culture of sharing that information has really been important. Again, 
One of the reasons why I get so concerned about these workshops, and I think we can all fill in the blanks of what Christopher Lloyd's answer to the question would be, of what do you think about these expensive workshops? Have you heard the expression, politics is local, all politics is local? So is gardening. In the midst of recording today's podcast, it's felt a little like monsoon season in the greater middle Tennessee area. And I'm sure for anybody in the uh, central, mid-south, let's call it, Mississippi up all the way into Wisconsin through Illinois, it has been either rainy or snowy or slushy or something not great. What's so interesting about that to me is I've been planting roses in the same period of time. Maybe not the best timing, but you deal. And I dug out 40 planting holes for 40 roses. And as I watched these planting holes get saturated with water over the last 48 hours, we could move three feet to the north, three feet to the west, and we saw the soil doing different things with the water. Some of the holes retaining huge amounts of water and others acting like no big deal. Percolate on through water. Percolate on through. My next t-shirt, by the way. It shows just how localized gardening can be. There's two big walkaways for me on this subject. When you buy a plant and you put it in that one spot, and that plant doesn't do well. Don't be so quick to blame yourself. This is something, as you listen to all of the podcast, you hear repeated. And I need you to get a, maybe a tattoo about this, piece of jewelry, write it down on a piece of paper, whatever your remembering system is. It's not your fault. Many of the times when a plant just dies, it has nothing to do with what we've done. There are so many times where you do everything right and the plant just dies. The plant was weak. That particular piece of ground was super wet and the plant just got a little too wet in its roots. They started to rot and then boom, it was gone. That doesn't have anything to do with you. What you can do as a really good gardener, and I often think maybe we should change the name of of gardening to person who pays attention a lot. Gardening is a lot about paying attention to the little things, not the big things. Not when you know your neighbor says, "Oh, it's raining a lot out." You're like, yeah, yeah, I get it, it's raining. Moving on. But did you notice how that one spot in the front corner of the garden bed is really holding water more than the rest of it? Mm, maybe next year I need to compost, amend, wood chip, leaf pile that one corner just a little bit more than the rest of the garden. Those are the kind of observations that make good gardens or make good gardens great. The little things in that local sensibility that add up to completely improve what you're doing. Here's another example. In many parts of the world, winter, is filled with cold wind. 
Anyone from the upper Midwest in America knows this. And that wind is responsible for a lot of damage to plants throughout the course of the year. I think many times people actually mistake what is referred to as desiccating winds, cold winds that dehydrate things, with winter damage from cold. So one person can plant, let's pick on something like a rose, because we're in the rose world, people. Plant a rose in maybe this real windy, plain-type area somewhere, and just every winter that thing just gets pummeled by those cold force winds. And it dries out those canes just enough every year to do damage. Then another person has a screen of a native tree or something they had planted, and it cuts those winds. And they don't. And they live one house over from each other. Again, that's how local it can be in any plant's world. So no matter what happens, make sure that you walk away always remembering gardening is a really localized activity that your best bet is to pay attention to. And those are the things that you can change. You know the left brain, right brain thing? Let me throw this at you. Gardening? Center brain. Center brain. More creative than analytical, but you need to get that little bit in the center so you can sort of think of yourself as someone who uh, maybe you go back and forth between the two and you end up in the middle. Gardening really is a creative pursuit. The approach of it is never practical. This is one of my big beliefs. Whenever we decide I'm going to put a plant here. It's immediately not practical. That plant's not from there 99% of the time. It may or may not do well there. We may or may not have grown that plant before. We have no clue. So immediately, we start off with a premise that's not practical. So we're already in creative country, people. That's where we're at. We're already in the land of creativity. Now, where do gardens go? wrong. Well, they go wrong when creativity isn't met with any kind of accountability and follow-up. It just becomes randomness of just planting without any kind of knowledge base. When you come to me now and you ask me questions on Instagram lives or on Instagram through direct messages, what I have is, and I, I one of my favorite quotes on the subject, actually, is from the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch shout-out Sherlock Holmes series that he did, where he referred to this as his mind palace, which I just thought was a great phrase, mind palace. What I like to think about with plants is I have this knowledge base where you say a plant to me, and immediately I have this rundown of knowledge and data associated with that plant. And then I have knowledge and data associated with just general horticulture, gardening, soil, watering, climate knowledge. And then I cross over those two things and boom, we got an answer. Those are the analytical parts. That's where we inch back towards the center brain thinking. Because if we just go creative, 
and we never develop that knowledge base, that's where we can find ourselves getting into trouble. We plant this, not in the right spot. We plant this, not at the right time of year. We don't know what happens if this happens. We don't know what to do when we run into this problem. Anecdotal story. There was, sounds like maybe a, a fable that I'm going into here. There once was a few people in this local area who wanted to start, and at some level did start, flower farm production. But one of the things that very early jumped out to me was the lack of experience with those particular plants. And as I tell everyone, your best bet is to just get their small. Three plants, six plants of the same thing. We're good. Do we need to go 750 Dahlia tubers on our first go of this? Probably not the best idea. And if you start with three, six, some number like that, you'll build that knowledge base just through experience. You go through it creatively. You know what you want to do. Your creative passion with this is to make a beautiful space, to do something that you really enjoy, that brings a lot of value to your life. And then through experience, through listening to me, through not listening to many other people. Because really, can we trust these people? No, not really. You gain this knowledge base of data that then you can access. And that gets us center-brained. So we start creative, start creative, run creative all day long, all day long, then go back center brain. And that is really going to create the process for you to work through how to garden. And that's why gardening is really that middle brain, that it's that perfect combination of creativity meets a little knowledge, a little bit of centering, then get completely crazy and practical. And then back and forth. And that cycle really is what makes gardening magical. Another thing that has been really rolling through my brain here in the last few weeks, and I'm going to thread the last few topics together here for you. Gardening is local. And another piece of information crossed through my email and direct messages this week about the workshop thing. And I was asked a question and I responded. And then this sort of struck me. I try really hard when we do have guests on the podcast to make sure that I'm having people on who have really broad worldviews and perspectives of gardening. Not just people that have maybe just had their own garden. I think in those cases, those guests have fascinating individual stories. But for some people, that information is not translatable. So when we have guests like Linda Chalker Scott on, Linda has worked with people all over the world, literally. She's lived in different parts of the United States. She's worked with academic uh, colleagues, literally from everywhere. 
So her knowledge of subjects is really, really, really broad spectrum. And when she talks to a subject, you know that's where she's coming from. She's not coming from, again, that local garden. Let's reverse their perspective for a moment. If your entire life, or in the last 10 years, let's not even say life, let's go 10 years. We'll give you a round number in 10. You've gardened in your garden. And you've become very efficient in that you know what you're doing. You got this thing down to a science. You're like a doctor out there. You're just going through, you know, every inch of ground in that garden. You know what's done well. You know what hasn't done well. You know your climate in your area. You are on top of this thing. But does that information always translate to someone that lives 2,100 miles away? In several podcasts, this topic has come up with Alan Armitage, with Michael Marriott, Rebecca Reed, a lot of guests. That two of the centers for gardening knowledge have been the United Kingdom and England, which, because of a very peculiar jet stream that exists on the planet we know as Earth, their climate is far warmer than it should be. If you ever want to go on a real deep dive of science, people, look into that. The latitude of the United Kingdom is really up there. But because of that jet stream, it moderates their weather. They should be far colder than they are. The other place where horticultural knowledge has come from has been the west coast of America. California North. California, Oregon, Washington. For anyone that's traveled out there, that weather is also completely different than the rest of the country. Why is that important? Well, it's important because if we're talking to people that have only gardened in an area of the Skagit Valley of Washington State, their worldview of plants is pretty limited. Is their knowledge transferable to somebody that lives in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, to the west of Minneapolis? Uh, no. Completely different. And one of the dangers, and I've heard this, not just my own opinion here, from numerous people that have reached out to me, is that these workshops are really coming from the perspective of just the individual's experience. I was really fortunate when I ran operations and sales for our nursery in Oregon that I get to travel everywhere. Trust me, you question your life choices when you find yourself in northern Wisconsin in the middle of February staying at a microtel hotel. That's how much traveling I was doing. And I would meet with independent garden center owners around the country. And then I would go visit with respected horticultural gardening people that like plants type people all across the country for five or six years. And that experience was so valuable to me because I did meet with people that were in Minnesota. I did meet with people that were in South Carolina, in Oklahoma in Maine, 
it gives you a really useful knowledge base when it comes to plants. One of the things I'm good at is when people ask me questions, I immediately go for the, where are you at in the country? Where are you at in the world? Because of that experience, I can tap into that and be like, oh, okay, here's your issues with that particular plant in that particular part of the world. And these workshops are coming from really specific climates. One of them is in Southern California. In-person workshop, very expensive. I have been blocked on Instagram. Merit badge coming soon, tattoo. Southern California at its higher elevations has an incredibly specific both microclimate and soil profile. Warm days, cool nights. Now, if you live in southern Alabama, do you have warm days and cool nights in August? Uh, no, you don't. You know what you have? Warm days and warm nights. Hotter days, warmer nights. I think it's a new television show or on Netflix coming this fall. That's a huge differential. So the information that a rose grower has to give you about growing roses in that specific corner of California isn't of a lot of use to you. Let me share this with you. And there's some of you that are going to hear this and be like, say what? Japanese beetles plague most of America. There's a real wives' tale. One of the, the great hysterical things of doing so much traveling for me was I would occasionally hear these things of how a bug got into this country. And there's a couple of bugs that the theory is, and entomologists seem to have a lot of theories on how bugs travel, was that some of these bugs came over in the 70s and 80s when rattan furniture was really popular. Now, I know rattan furniture is making a comeback, so maybe this is double negative. These people are going to be very upset if this actually was true. But they believed that some of the Japanese beetles and Asian origin beetles got over here in those transports. Well, Japanese beetles devour everything. Anybody that's dealt with them knows they have no taste. They're not discriminate eaters. They'll eat anything. They're the exact opposite of a picky eater. Well, California, Oregon, Washington, they don't have them. That beetle, despite it being a ferocious eater, has not figured out how to make it over the Rocky Mountains. Now, one day that will change. One day the Japanese beetle will finally get to Oregon and Washington and California. But now they don't have them. So if you're growing roses, dahlias, nearly anything, and you're growing them in Washington or Oregon, Come June, come July, no Japanese beetles for you. You're not even worried about it. You haven't even seen one. Not the same if you garden in Ohio, in Kentucky, the East Coast of America. So how you deal with that problem is an issue because it will be an issue. There will be a year where you have gardened and suddenly you're new to gardening, and this 
horrible shiny bug shows up. And at first you'll think, oh, whatever, it's just a beetle. And then another will show up. And then another will show up. And then they'll have some kind of really weird situation going on that you'll have a hard time describing to your kids in a PG way. And they'll start eating your plants. And the gardening workshop from California and the gardening workshop that was thousands of dollars from Washington State, they won't even know what you're talking about. They'll be like, yeah, yeah, I've heard of them. I've seen pictures. Sort of like Bigfoot. I've never dealt with them personally. Um, I would Google it. You'll figure something out. It's a pretty big deal. I'm working on a project for next year, people. This is sort of inside secrets. If people, if you listen to the podcast, you're getting this information. Or if you're listening to this on Instagram Live. But this is sort of top secret. I'm working on something for next year that will give us like a product that we can sell across the country. And one of the things I'm really focused on is that if we do this, that we can also provide content that's really specific, really, really specific, regionally specific. I don't think I'm going to have the time to maybe go state specific, but I'll get pretty close to it. So when we have this product, you'll have this resource to be able to use. So if you're in Indiana, in Clay County, Indiana, yes, I know where Clay County, Indiana is outside of Indianapolis. And it's called Clay County because you got a lot of clay. I can help you out. If you're in Colorado and you have all this shale in your soil and your plants have a hard time dealing with the thaws that happen, snow, sun, snow, sun, snow, sun, and you go out on a February day and you can hear as they thaw the woody exterior bark cracking, literally, we can help you out. Because again, gardening is local. It's not the ability for someone who has just gardened on their little patch of land to suddenly dole out information for thousands of dollars for you to pay for when that person has never even dealt with a Japanese beetle. And speaking of beetles and horrible things, by the way, is I, I take a quick left turn here. Chilean thrips. Everyone's heard me talk about thrips at this stage. If you haven't, Instagram archive highlights. The thrip is my nemesis. Another tattoo. Chilean thrips are growing in very temperate parts of the United States. Now, what makes the Chilean thrip so devastating compared to the other thrips? And yes, there's lots of them. So Western flower thrip, there's a Cuban thrip, there's a citrus thrip, there's some debate if they're the same thing or not. But moving on, the Chilean thrip not only attacks flowers, but it attacks the foliage and new growth of leaves on plants too. And the flowers. Double horror with these Chilean thrips. So far, Florida, Southern Texas, a little bit in the Mountain West states, then into Southern California, they seem to be moving sort of upwards. Now, this is another example. If you're gardening in, let's say, Maine, it's too cold for the Chilean thrip there. What we know so far about them is 
They can't take extreme cold temperatures. They can't overwinter very well, the eggs themselves. So, if we're in cooler parts of the country, so far, seems like we're going to be okay. Like 20 degrees-ish seems to be about their limitation. Hopefully that's true. We don't need any kind of bug evolvery going on. Then we have Chilean thrips to deal with as well. But again, the point being, if you're in Vermont, you'll never have to worry about the Chilean threat potentially. But if you live in Southern California and you're growing roses, you're cursing the Chilean thrip every day when they show up. Those are the differences that when we talk about gardening advice, that's when having that broad perspective is so good. And to bring this whole conversation full circle, one of the great skills of being able to be a good gardener is zooming in and zooming out. Looking at the small macro of what's going on and pulling way back and gaining perspective of what's going on in that category. I'm working on having a couple of weather people. Yes, yes, the people who are responsible for fake news from Noah on. And my hope there is that we're going to schedule them pretty soon and we'll be able to have a conversation about global weather and how global changes affect us localized. And for gardening, clearly this is a big subject and it's been on my mind because as I said earlier, as I record this podcast, there's a constant deluge going on outside for the last three days. And that's another case where your weather is again so varied from other people. One last topic on this Gardening Notes edition of the podcast. It's really important to me that everybody take this pledge. When I was doing an Instagram Live the other night, I said this, and it stuck with me after this. When you grow a plant, don't judge the plant in the first three months. Plants aren't like relationships with people. People, if you want to judge them after three months, you do you. But plants take some time. While I was digging the rare root roses that I received from Weeks Roses, which, by the way, were a couple of grades below David Austin Roses, and a couple of grades below is maybe me being kind. I remember the journey of these plants. A year and a half to two years ago, they were budded in a field in California. They were growing happily amongst all their thousands of other rose friends. Then, some horrible machine, like in the secret of Nim, came by and uprooted the rose from the ground. Boom, it's out, it's done. Its roots are sort of over there. Before that even, they gave it a tragic haircut with a giant machine and cut all the tops of it off. Then they threw it in the back of some kind of truck transportation device and brought it into a factory and did some kind of storage deal with it and then sent it to me. That in itself is traumatic. Then you take it you put it in the ground, and the rose is just waking up, right? It's like you go to the dentist ever, and they put you under, or you have some kind of operation done. Then you wake up, and you got that drowsy, foggy, where am I? Did the aliens abduct me brain going on? Plants have the same thing. 
this minute where they're like, whoa. Wait, okay. So let me get this straight. I was in California and I woke up and now I'm in Tennessee. Whoa, what did I drink last night? The plant takes time just to get acclimated. And three months is not doing the job. In fact, let's make a rule. Let's go three years. Let's give this plant some time. During the Instagram Live that I recently did, one of the roses that a few people decided to purchase from David Austin was Boscobel. I love Boscobel. Let's get that out of the way. Boscobel has this glow to it that few of the pink roses do. There's almost a uh, purple hue to the undertoning of Boscobel, but in the most glowy, beautiful way possible. But Boscobel is a little slower to flower early than some of its peers. If you compared a first-year Boscobel to a first-year Lady Gardener, you'd go, Boscobel, pick up the slack. You're slow to flower. Come on. And maybe you'd go, eh, not as good. But two, three years down the road, Boscobel will catch up to Lady Gardener and will be just as heavy a flower and still have that magic coloration. But that's not going to happen in three months. More than likely going to happen in three years. Also keep this in mind. If you are in a part of the world with a short growing season, let's say your spring begins in mid-May. Your fall begins in early September. It's only a four to five month growing season where for me here in Tennessee anymore, we'll have to check with the facts, fact checker, our warmups begin in February and sometimes we don't even cool down until December and the roots are actively going that whole time. We don't get ground freeze. So the roots are always usually active. So you could almost argue from a root perspective, we have a 10 to 12 month growing season. But if you're in Minnesota, you may only really have six months, maybe five. So Boscobel is going to establish far faster for me than for you. So maybe I'll see the best of Boscobel in year two. But you may not see the best of Boscobel till year three. So be fair, people. Don't judge a rose, a tree, anything that takes time to establish. Annuals is a different story. Judge your annuals early. They only got one year to do something. Do something. But perennials, anything that's going to be in a garden for a minute in that first year. Don't judge them the day after they had a hangover. We all know they were drunken in California and got ripped up out of the ground and thrown to your house. Not fair to judge like that. Remember, give a plant some time. Usually, like old school Bordeaux wines, they will get better with age. And then occasionally, you'll hit year three and a half, four. You'll stare at the plant.
and go, you know, it's just not working out between you and I. I thought we were going to have a beautiful relationship. Turns out you and the shovel are going to get acquainted. And then you have my permission to do it. But before that, be patient. Wrapping up Natchez Glen House Stories number 16, the Garden Notes edition. These are my favorite months. Love February, March, April right now. Used to think February was winter. Now think February is spring. But occasionally, winter visits. Sometimes same for March. But overall, we're more on the spring trend than the winter trend. And I'm using the word winter like real winters. Not like southern winters, but more like upper Midwest, New England winters. What I love about this time is that hope. The future of what's to come. It's like your best friend. Maybe even beyond that. It's like if you had the most awesome person you've ever known. And you get to see them once a year. And you wait for anticipation with that. You're like, I can't wait to see, we'll call them Larry. Larry. And then Larry shows up. Here's where it gets interesting with plants. No matter what happens, raining torrentially, snowing, flight delays, they're going to get here. It's going to happen. Even in those dark days of real cold winter areas and years, spring is going to show up. And this planning period to me, where am I going to put the roses? Where am I going to put the peonies? What are the new plants going to look like? I wonder if this is the year that Bosca Bell is just going to take off and can be covered with blooms. That's what every year at this time, I start to think about those little details of what I'm looking forward to. Not the big overall picture, but the little tiny things. One of the roses that I planted in this recent order was Easy Does It. Easy Does It is a really bad name, by the way. Can we just get that out of the way? But it's got this scalloped petal, which I'm currently obsessed with. Any rose with a scallop petal, I immediately go, I wonder if I should buy that. And then usually I do, but only if they offer them in 10 or more. Easy does it. Out of this group of roses, this is the one I'm really like, I wonder if that's going to look really good in person. Because I've never seen it before in person. Seen pictures, done my research, but never grown it personally. So that's the one out of this group that I can't wait for. But then, As soon as I'm done thinking that, I remember, man, every time I've ever seen Pope John Paul II, that rose has been gorgeous and a super great fragrance to it, almost some citrusy lemon tones to it. And then I think of some other plant and then something else. But it's those small details that keep me going through the whole year, typically. I try to find 
when I'm in the dog days of summer, I go, I wonder if the Japanese maples are going to have great fall color this year. I wonder when the frost is going to come. How long am I going to have dahlias for? All of the thoughts that string together that keep hope and garden together. The only dreams I've had have been in the daytime Anything to get away from the straight line the straight line that I walk With all the medicated masses Creating minds outlined in chalk I've always bordered on the edge of something my mind goes where very few dare to tread Is it wrong that I'm dying, trying hard to live So abandon, break my back For a world that just won't give a little Safe inside, no. 